This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Tuesday, January the 31st, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, author Jamie Bowman discusses her book, Bike Riding in Kabul, The Global Adventures of a Foreign Aid Practitioner. Legislation in British Columbia is failing to protect old gray, which means the show wraps up with the weekly news quiz. We'll once again spin the wheel of randomization to bring in contestants. Alicia Yardley, Greg, and fresh voices on the weekly news quiz. Speaking of the randomizing wheel, if you watch this show every single day, you'll know the top story of the day has been basically one of two things for the last few months, the economy or healthcare. And once again, those two stories will be your top story of the day, beginning with the economy. Stats Canada says the economy grew by 0.1% in November. A preliminary estimate from the federal agency suggests real gross domestic product, or GDP, grew by an annualized rate of 1.6% in the fourth quarter. Those numbers just came across the wire a few minutes ago. I'll have some analysis for you tomorrow on the show alongside a conversation with Kevin Shaw. We'll discuss how the media covers the economy and maybe some of the pitfalls that this industry falls into when talking about money. Speaking of the economy, the International Monetary Fund has upgraded its outlook for the global economy in 2023. Lisa Dwyer explains. The outlook for the global economy is growing slightly brighter as China eases its zero-COVID policies and the world shows surprising resilience in the face of high inflation, elevated interest rates and Russia's ongoing war against Ukraine. That's the view of the International Monetary Fund, which now expects the world economy to grow 2.9% this year. That forecast is better than the 2.7% expansion for the year that the IMF predicted back in October, although that's still down from the estimated 3.4% growth for last year. The IMF foresees inflation easing this year as a result of aggressive interest rate hikes by the Federal Reserve and other major central banks. I'm Lisa Dwyer. And one more economy story for you. The U.S. Federal Reserve is set to kick off a two-day policy meeting. Elizabeth Schusel looks ahead. After the most aggressive year of interest rate hikes in decades, the Federal Reserve is expected to keep raising borrowing costs, but by a smaller amount. Analysts predict the Fed on Wednesday will announce a quarter-point interest rate hike after seven rate increases in a row last year. There are signs the central bank's campaign to slow down spending in the economy is working as inflation cools. Still, the Fed has said lowering prices even more is its top priority. Elizabeth Schulze, ABC News, Washington. So that's the economy side of the picture. What about health care? Well, starting in the world of federal politics, House Speaker Anthony Rota rejected NDP leader Jagmeet Singh's request for an emergency debate on health care. Singh has laid out his concerns about the shift in health care. The for-profit privatization, the American-style health care system that Doug Ford and Daniel Smith are proposing, it's only going to make things worse. It's going to cannibalize from the public system, public ER doctors and nurses, and other healthcare uh, practitioners are going to be cannibalized into a for-profit private clinic. Singh believes the Canada Health Act should be used more aggressively by the federal government. The Canada Health Act gives us significant powers and has been used in the past to challenge for-profit privatized care. And, and it should be used more regularly and more aggressively to protect uh, public health care. Canadians believe in that. Another thread of health care t- to tug at is long-term care. There are proposed new standards for long-term care homes issued by the Health Standards Organization. Those standards say residents should get at least four hours of direct care every day. Dr. Samir Sinha is the chair of the technical committee that developed the standards. He says these need to be enforceable standards. These standards are only useful if they're actually implemented, if they become the basis of enforcement and accountability measures, um, not only accreditation measures. 
The standards also call for a pay increase for people who work in long-term care settings. Typically, long-term care falls under the auspices of the provinces, but the Prime Minister has said the federal government is looking to develop standards. And one more provincial health care story for you. The Ontario Nurses Association has started bargaining a new contract for hospital nurses. They've been subject to a wage freeze for three years under Bill 124. That capped pay increases at 1% a year. Interim President of the ONE, Bernie Robinson, says high, higher pay and better staffing are key issues. We have asked, uh, you know, to have, have discussions about how we can improve staffing. Obviously, we're looking for wages, wage increases, uh, respectful wave, wage increases. Robinson laid out the feeling of her membership. The days of 1% um, are seen as an insult to us. Um, our nurses feel very devalued. They uh, do not feel respected. And uh, safe to say that we're, we are looking for uh, far more. That is your look at the news. Here are the daily polls. Of course, you can vote on these at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Monday, you were asked, do you customize your technology, devices, and accessories? 29% of you said yes, my software. 0% of you said yes, my hardware. 29% of you said yes to both. And 42% of you says no. Today's daily poll requires a little bit of setup. A new report says Ontario job seekers are increasingly looking for work in other provinces. Karen Rebo has more. The job search company Indeed says in the second half of 2022, 6.1% of clicks on Canadian job postings by Ontario-based job seekers were for positions in other provinces. That's an almost 50% increase from the second half of 2019, before the COVID-19 pandemic upended the labour market. The outbound interest from Ontario is especially peaked for those seeking jobs in remote, friendly sectors like tech and marketing. Indeed says this trend highlights the pandemic effect on remote work, which has expanded the geographic scope of white-collar job searches. Karen Rebo, The Canadian Press. So that story led me to a thought for today's daily poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. And here's the question. Let's grapple with this together. What factors might influence you to move from one province to another? And if your choice isn't listed, you know what to do please write in. So here are the options. Job opportunities, cost of living, weather, social services. Of course, there's plenty of other things that could come to mind for you, but those are the four that I have. Job opportunities, cost of living, weather, or social services. Alex Smythe, let's bring you in on this one. You've done the transient provincial dance a couple of times, and it was job opportunities that got you moving, but what do you make of this question? Yeah, no, I think it's a, a great question, Dave. And yeah, yeah, you're a hundred percent right. I've already, I've already done it. Uh, you know, I, I made the move when I first joined AMI to move from Ontario out to Alberta, and um, it was one of those things for for myself that I, I needed to look outside of my province for the opportunity that I was seeking. I, I wanted to work in television, and I wanted an opportunity to be on camera and I didn't have much luck in finding anything in Ontario so looking into the other provinces gave me that opportunity and I'm I'm grateful I did now it definitely came with those those challenges but you know I I think there is value in looking outside of your immediate area because the the opportunities can expand and obviously you know the cost of living out in Edmonton were is far lower than it is in Toronto or the GTA the weather, maybe not as nice as the GTA, so, you know, you have to weigh the pros and cons. It gets very cold in Edmonton. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I'm glad I did it. Uh, but ultimately, I also decided that, you know, it was there was a reason for me to want to come back to Ontario because that's where my roots were. But uh, to spend a few years out there to work in a job that I really enjoyed, to get that experience, it was really valuable. 
job opportunities are obviously a key one. The, the reason why I moved from Montreal to Ottawa, moved from Quebec to Ontario back in 2009, in theory was for an educational opportunity in broadcasting, the college broadcasting diplomas that are available in Ontario. There's nothing truly like that in Quebec. So in theory, I left for an educational opportunity, but the logical extension of that was job opportunities as well. There's just more opportunities in English media than there is in Ontario, than there is in Quebec. But I'll tell you, Alex, cost of living is something that I think about a lot. My cost of living jumped up a big time when I moved from Ottawa to Toronto. That's with, Now, that's within the province, making a move. Mm-hmm. Certainly uh, elsewhere in the country, you think about cost of living in different ways. There have been a few times in my life where I have put a big circle around Vancouver and said, I would like to live here because the weather is nice, because there would be some job opportunities for the flaws that it has, much like any other province. BC does have some really good social services, and they currently have a very forward-looking provincial government. But that cost of living is something that might actually stop me from moving from one province to another, going from probably the second most expensive city to live in in the country to the first most expensive city in the country would be a big time complication. That said, my gosh, that weather in Vancouver, it's its a different beast. I can deal with a couple months of rain from December to mid-February, but when those cherry blossoms start popping up in late February and early March, and you can feel that spring a little bit earlier, weather is a big deal. The thing is, without a great job opportunity in a place like Vancouver, the cost of living makes it basically impossible to go make that move. So all of these things can can factor in in their, in their own given way, but really, if there's not a job opportunity, if there's not a way to actually pay your bills, man, it makes it really difficult to even consider any of these other factors. Absolutely. Well, and when you mentioned uh, Vancouver, well, there's a reason. Lots of other people want to live in Vancouver as well. So hence why the cost of living is so high. You know, there's a lot of approach to that. But I I think, too, it's like, and I've looked at it numerous times, just like, and thought to myself, oh, what if I would look to live somewhere else, where would it be? Things like that. Well, the cost of living would be a lot lower. But you, you have to weigh all the different factors. Yeah, well, it may be more affordable to live out there, but what about the social connections that you have if, if you're comparing it to, you know, your hometown or where your your home base traditionally has right, been? Right, right. If I were to go so, back to Montreal or Ottawa, I would have roots there, different, different exactly. than Vancouver. That said, I, a lot of my friends have made that move. I, I've got a pretty mm-hmm. good support system out there in, in BC if I want it. Yeah, well, and that's key. Like when I moved out to Edmonton, I really didn't have that. So I was basically starting from zero. And that, it, it was tough. And especially when you get those, those days of those crappy weather the the cold the the rain or the snow and you're kind of stuck inside you're kind of like oh yeah okay i i love friends and family and everything for this you know it can it can weigh on you but uh you know you you put it with the the good and the bad and it it, it affords you an opportunity to try something new mm-hmm. so i mean i i've always like kind of i guess fantasized of maybe moving out east now i know The weather is a big factor out east. You know, the cost of living is lower. The job opportunities may be lower in the weather. You know, there may be many more tropical storms, those those winter storms that they get. Yeah, wet, heavy snow they get uh, on the regular. Exactly. So there's there's always that, like, pull and tug that you kind of go through. Ultimately, I'm happy in Ontario. I just wish the cost of living was a bit lower. That's that's all we need, and then then it'll be okay. Well, just go move to Kingston. Go move to Eastern Ontario. That's uh, but then the, but then winter comes for you in a in a big yeah. way. Even even just a couple hours down the highway, Alex. I've also had the Atlantic Canada fantasy as well. I've been to Halifax a few times now, and that city has treated me beyond well to the point that it's now on one of my top. It's one of my top cities in all of Canada. But I've also been to places like Fredericton, New Brunswick, and really really love. New Brunswick and I have flirted back especially back when I was working remotely on the pulse uh, back in 2017 2018 I at least flirted with the opportunity of, uh, of moving to New Brunswick and moving to Fredericton and buying a big old house like essentially downtown for half the cost of living that I had in eastern Ontario and probably a quarter of the cost of living that I have here in uh, southern Ontario but yeah you know at a certain point I have no community at all for me in Fredericton so for me, that was that was off the table pretty quickly. Alex, thank you for your thoughts on this one. And I enjoy playing this fantasy game of where people might want to move. So as you vote on this poll, 
And as you think about this poll, feel free to get involved in the comments section or reply to the tweet with maybe the places that you've considered going and why. So not just if your option isn't listed, tell me a little bit more about where you would want to go and why you'd want to go there. At Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. The email address is feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or you can hit the voicemail line, one 509 4545 That's 1-866-509-4545. Let's uh, talk about those neighborhoods that you might want to live in when Alex tells you what's going on in the world of weather. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We'll start out east in St. John, Newfoundland, where it's mainly cloudy today and it's a high of one degree, but feeling like minus six with that wind chill. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, one of Dave's favorite places, it's cloudy with five centimeters of snow falling this morning, but it's clearing up in the afternoon. The high is minus one, and the wind chill makes it feel like minus seven. In Montreal, Quebec, it's Dave's old stomping ground, it's cloudy, and then clearing up for sunshine later this morning. Minus nine is the high, and wind chill makes it feel like minus 16. Another one of Dave's old places in Ottawa, Ontario. It's sunny today. This, this Dave, he gets, of, this Dave gets around. Exactly, Dave gets around. So sunny today, the high is minus eight, and it's very cold with the wind chill, making it feel like minus 27. Here in Toronto, Ontario, it is a mix of sun and clouds and possible snow early this morning. The high is minus five, and it's feeling like minus 19. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, it is sunny, and it's a high of minus 13, but with that wind chill, it feels like minus 36 degrees this morning. It is an extreme cold warning in effect for the area, so be careful if you're out and about. To Winnipeg, Manitoba, it is mainly sunny. The high is minus 22, but with that wind chill, it feels like minus 40. Ooh. And so there is also an extreme cold warning in effect for Winnipeg as well. Another city, More that, that, weather, another, another city that I love, but the weather will keep me from moving to Winnipeg. Exactly, exactly. And moving on, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it's a similar condition to mix of sun and clouds and a chance of light snow today. The high, minus 16, and a wind chill makes it feel like minus 32. In Calgary, Alberta, it's mainly cloudy. Minus six is the high, and the wind chill makes it feel like minus 14. Up in Edmonton, Alberta, there's light snow today. Minus 10 is the high, minus 16 with that wind chill. The Yellowknife Northwest Territories. It's mainly sunny today, but extremely cold. The high is minus 32, and with the wind chill, it feels like minus 51. So you can bet there is an extreme cold warning in effect for the area. To Vancouver, BC, where uh, Dave is dreaming of a new life, <laughs> it's cloudy with a chance of snow in the morning, then turning to possible rain in the afternoon, but the high is three degrees. And finally, in Victoria, BC, it's cloudy with a chance of snow in the morning, turning to possible rain in the afternoon, the high is five degrees. And that's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, author Jamie Bowman discusses her book, Bike Riding in Kabul, The Global Adventures of a Foreign Aid Practitioner. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Global events perpetually create conversations about the need for foreign aid. When you think about humanitarian crises caused by famine or war, oftentimes foreign aid is what other governments are doing to try and lend a hand. But what does it really entail? What are the outcomes and how is it doled out? Here to give you some insight into the field is Jamie Bowman. Jamie is an international legal consultant and the author of Bike Riding in Kabul, The Global Adventures of a Foreign Aid Practitioner. And the book is available via Kindle on Amazon. And Jamie is speaking to you from Washington, D.C. Hey, Jamie, thank you for making time to join the show today. We're grateful. Well, thank you 
for having me. Just one thing, if you hear a helicopter go by, that's the president leaving the White House. Oh, that's gosh. How close live. Oh, my goodness. Okay, you are right there on the on the lawn of the White House, an insider, <laughs> an insider through and through. <laughs> right, well, we're close, yeah. Anyway, thank you for having me today. Oh, we're so glad you could make time for us. So, Jamie, first things first, you decided to write a book. Why'd you do that? I did. Um, I want to make a distinction of what you were talking about. There's humanitarian aid, and that's not what I do. Um, those are the people who are on the ground helping in crises and helping women, and, and, and all that is so valuable. I do legal reform. So um, I was working in subprime. I didn't like it. I didn't see a future in it. And um, the only other job I could get was working internationally on developing laws for countries that were making the transition from communism um, to capitalism and um, implementing democracy. And also those countries whose um, legal frameworks have been left behind. Um, uh, Britain um, uh, created the Commonwealth but I think in 62, and a lot of those laws in Africa and other uh, prior colonies had not been reformed. So I go in, I look at what the legal framework looks like, and I make recommendations on how to improve it. <clears throat> so what what goes into that process? How, how much time are you spending in that country? How much time are you spending dealing with uh, the, the current legal construction as you're trying to implement a new legal construction? It depends on the country. It depends on the kind of support that they have, that we have from the government. Um, a lot of governments will say, yes, please come in. We need the help. And then when you get there, they're not so excited about the reform after all. So, it for example, I worked in Rwanda. Um, there the president was Paul Kagame. Um, Paul Kagame is a little bit controversial, but as far as reforming his country to, be, to make it a hub for financial services, he was behind us. He helped. He gave us all the support we needed. You also spent some time in Afghanistan, certainly a country that was so impacted by by years of war, whether it be the civil war uh, back into the 1970s, whether it be the Russian invasion in the 1980s, and of course, uh, the conflict with the United States and, uh, and, and some other NATO countries in the early 2000s. What was that experience like for you? Uh, first, I was there twice. I was there in 2005, and that's where the story bike riding in Kabul comes from, because at the time, it was safe enough that I could actually borrow a bike, and my boyfriend and I rode down the empty streets of Kabul in the, on a Friday morning when um, it's the day of worship. So we had the, the road to ourselves. It wasn't a very smart idea. Um, at that time, uh, there was still this optimism that things were changing, that women were being educated, girls were going to school, um, women were becoming judges. Uh, we were making changes to the legal framework. It was being modernized. Um, when I went there, I had to deal a lot with the civil code and uh, they had provisions and they probably still have these provisions. If a divorced woman swears, she can't get remarried. So I mean, there's things like that to work with. But when I went back in 2010, it there was le less optimism. Um, there was donor fatigue. Um, we'd been there, and other donors had been there for so many years, and the progress was slowing down. So in just those five years, things had changed dramatically. As you flash forward 13 years later, we know the situation continues to deteriorate. How frustrating is that for people like you and your colleagues seeing the country regress after all the work that was put in for nearly two decades? Well, I, th I think we're going to see it in other places, too. Um, that regression, though, my big worry is could we have avoided that? Um, and that's part of the lessons in the book. Um, they're practical stories. They're stories that tell practical lessons that you can't always have a win. You have to look at what happened. You have to adjust the next time around. And so I do that through eight chapters, eight, eight countries. And I hope the next generation of development professionals will take from it. I don't tell you what to think. But I prepare you for the type of, of uh, incidents and, and, uh, that you're going to confront. So you'll be aware of it when you're um, on site. 
on the show we do a lot of conversation about uh, disability and inclusion and one of the one of the mantras that i find myself saying over and over is that progress is not always linear that sometimes you're going to take a few steps forward and a few steps back how much is maybe zooming out and thinking about relativity an important part of what you and your colleagues do well not everybody does what i do when i write a law and it gets enacted I go back several years later and I look to see if it's still in place, um, see if it's been changed, see if it's been modified or what the regulations look like, because I want to know whether or not what we finally ended up with is appropriate for the country. And I think that's really important. You, you have to look forward, but you also have to look back and learn from your own lessons as well as the lessons of the country. Certainly when you look at some places that you worked, like Afghanistan or Rwanda, that either came out of civil war or significant conflict, uh, genocide in the case of Rwanda, those are, those are particularly jarring cases. But you also spent some time in a country like Ukraine, and, and that's not to imply that there isn't a difficult history that exists in that country as well. But how was it different when you were talking about times of political tumult versus necessarily um, like conflict or war as you were talking about a change in economy in a country like Ukraine? You know, Ukraine was really interesting. I was there in 2003, and when you would meet with a Russian, the Russians would say, Ukraine is part of Russia. It's like, you can do what you want here, but eventually Ukraine will be back with Russia. It's our history. So uh, I always sort of expected, not this war, but I thought that there would be some other connection because they were so adamant. Ukraine was poor and it was getting poorer. And that was hard to see. Um, I wrote the mortgage law, which allowed people to own, not own, but take a mortgage on their property. And a lot of people used that to leave the country. Um, that's the kind of situation it was in. When you work in a post-conflict country like Southern Sudan or Afghanistan, in Iraq, I worked in Iraq, you have to be aware that the population is war fatigued. I mean, you're dealing with people um, who have dealt with an immense amount and much of our success is based on connections. And so if you're unable to curry trust from those people that you're working with, you're not gonna get anywhere. I'm not sure I answered your question. <laughs> I, no, but I, I, I think I think it certainly applies, right? Because certainly at a certain point you're connecting with individuals, even if even if they're relying on your expertise to help frame new laws, you still have to understand that there there is a um, a domestic influence that you need to be mindful of if what you're writing is going to be successful. That's true, and you also you also are asking somebody, it may be a department, it may be a ministry, it may be an individual person, to put their reputation on the line for what you are promoting. So, uh, and that takes a lot of trust and bond. I mean, you have to get in there and go through the whole explanation of why this is important for the country. And um, you have to sell it. It, it, this may, uh, the way I frame this question may, may be a little bit, um, I don't know, some folks might say it's it's a little bit misinformed or a little bit myopic, but in a couple in a couple of the cases that you've cited, these were fledgling democracies. And mm -hmm. if we were to zoom out a little bit, are you at all concerned at the way in which democratic institutions are, are being supported globally? There, there is a line of thought right now that says democracy globally is maybe not under attack, but certainly under threat. When you think about the work that you've done and you think about some of the places that you've worked, how do you react to that line of thought that is existing right now in inter international politics? Okay, this isn't a very popular view, but it's true. Democracy is boring. Um, I'm not talking, the concept is fabulous, uh, but when you actually get down to it, how democracy functions and how it maintains its uh, the equality and justice is having people like me who are willing to sit at a desk and deal with documents all day long. Mm. Make sure that the records are kept. Make sure that things are made public. Make sure that there are the right protections in place. And you know, that's not as exciting as you see on TV um, when you have someone making that justice point. So until you have those people who are willing to do the grunt work day in, day out, 
um, democracy isn't such a sure thing. Um, you really need to have the right people in the right places. And that's true with so many aspects, but democracy especially. Jamie, one last question for you. You've been very generous with your time. What was it like actually sitting down and writing a book versus writing a law? It was very different. And you know, um, I had friends read it and every single person who read it brought something very valuable to the book. So, I mean, even if it was, uh, somebody looked at it for sensitivity, they said, you know, this is kind of, this is, would annoy me if I read it. Somebody read it and said, we need to know more about you. Someone read it and said, I wanna know more about the country. So um, it really was a change, but I wrote it during COVID. So I had the time to do it and I took, and now I'm working on the sequel, which has oh, um, <laughs> all new, I don't know what it's gonna be called, but, um, but it will have a, a slew of different countries. But it was very difficult. I'm glad I wrote the book. I will always be glad I wrote the book. It's the exact book that I wanted to write, but it was tough. That's something that a lot of authors will echo, that there's a lot of time spent alone with a keyboard and a computer shining in your face. Jamie, it's right. no it's no small accomplishment. Congratulations on the release of the book and best of luck in writing the sequel. Cheers, thanks so much. That's Jamie Bowman, author of the book, Bike Riding in Kabul, The Global Adventures of a Foreign Aid Practitioner, speaking to you from Washington, D.C. Coming up after the break, legislation in British Columbia is failing to protect old-growth trees in the province. Lawrence Gunther will fill you in, but first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minutes. Canada's main stock index saw a triple-digit drop yesterday, while U.S. markets suffered even steeper losses. Ahead of the Fed's latest interest rate decision and earnings reports from major tech names like Apple, Amazon, and Google's parent company, Toronto's TSX index lost 142 points to 20,572. New York's Dow Jones average dropped 260 points, and the Nasdaq gave back 227. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index lost 106 points, and our dollar is trading overseas this morning lower at 74.35 cents U.S. StatsCan is set to release its November reading of real gross domestic product for Canada this morning. RBC is forecasting the economy grew by 0.1% in November. Economic growth was expected to slow in response to higher interest rates, with many economists anticipating a mild recession this year. The Bank of Canada has raised its key interest rate eight consecutive times since March, now at 4.5% from the Canadian press business. Desk. I'm Karen Rebo. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. In 2020, the BC government's passed legislation that aimed to protect old growth trees and old growth forests. However, these trees continue to be removed. Here to explain what is happening is Lawrence Gunther. Lawrence is the host of the AMI-audio show, Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther, which you can find Sundays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. You can also find Outdoors as a podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Hey, good morning. Good morning, Lawrence. Hi, Dave. So, Lawrence, this has been a flashpoint issue for a number of years in British Columbia. What's happening here? How was it discovered these old-growth trees are still being cut down? Well, there's a lot of protesters, a lot of eyes on the forest by a lot of concerned citizens, for sure. First Nations and non-First Nations people both are, have a lot of um, uh, questions about this. But the TIE is a, is a news organization out on the West Coast, one of these small little, you know, donation-fed organizations. Mm -hmm. And they did an access to information request, and they found out a lot more background about this 2020 tree regulation and who it was really intended to protect and it's not the trees so how did this legislation this bc tree protection plan fall short well it 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 says they're going to protect 1500 super large trees but when you look at the size limits you know in terms of what can be cut and what can't be cut they're so huge that really it only covers a handful of trees and these are trees that are already protected sort of in parks along roads along rivers trees that can't be cut down anyway so in reality it didn't it didn't address the logging of these large trees anyways like for instance a red cedar you know it has to be 
uh, over 385 centimeters in diameter or 12 feet in diameter to qualify, Dave. That's a huge tree. You remember that picture of that giant log that was coming down the uh, highway on the big mm-hmm. flatbed trailer a few years ago and hit social media? There's a lot of people said that tree wouldn't even be covered by this legislation. So you mentioned, or at least the article in the TIE mentioned, that these laws are potentially protecting somebody else. So who are these regulations protecting? Well, people who make money at forestry, right? Logging companies. And there's all sorts of people who own logging companies. You know, it's it's a main uh, bread and butter type issue on, on, on British Columbia's coast. Cutting down trees, making things with those tree products, selling trees, you know, turning them into uh, pellets. You know, we've talked about pellets mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, ta- making them into diapers and paper towels and just weird things, you know, not even valuing the, the, the age and, and the size of these trees in any respectful way at all. Lawrence, I, I know this goes maybe a little bit outside of the scope of what the Taiyi was writing about, but what's the danger of losing old growth forests? It's 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 a huge uh, carbon sink, right? When you take these canopies down, when you take these trees down, the ground gets hot, things dry out, the f- chance of forest fire increases. Then you know when you have floods and and major you know these these atmospheric uh, rain rivers, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then dump onto the land all that treeless property that's on the hills slopes of mountains becomes wet and then it in it there's avalanches of that mudslides you know that fill in rivers that, that eliminate habitat for fish you know it's just a it's just a knock-on effect that goes on and on and on lawrence one of the complications that exists here is not simply just logging companies versus first mm-hmm. nations people what is going on right now in the conversations that some first nations communities are having versus other first nations communities well the past premier of british columbia john horgan you know he said the the people that are protesting the the lumber industry on the west coast are are do-gooders and they're out of touch with first nations realities that first nations people have been living in poverty for for generations now and that they need the opportunity to make some money and and forestry is one of these opportunities so you see a lot of uh you know these communities, First Nations communities, and their elected uh, councils and chiefs who have entered into logging operations. Now, there's some heretical chiefs and others in the First Nations community who are against this, and you see them on the protest lines, but not in huge numbers. You know, there's a lot of uh, outsiders who are protesting mostly, and um, and, and that for the most part, the First Nations communities are, are relatively quiet on this. They're saying, look, these are this is our forest. We've been cutting down trees and doing this for, for thousands of years. This is, you know, we're going to keep doing this. this. is how we make money, how we support our society and our lifestyle and, our, and, and put food on the table. So, yeah, there's that's all going on. That's all going on in around the First uh, Nations communities and, their, and the forest that they have control over. And then there's all the rest of British Columbia. Right. Okay. What about the rest of British Columbia? Well, they're just silently moving ahead with their forestry. If you look at the government database, there's about 2.3 million trees, large trees listed in that government database. This legislation maybe protects one in every 10,000. So if if they do find a tree that qualifies for protection, they ha- they can't harvest within a hectare of it. There has to be a hectare, one hectare area around that tree that's okay. protected. Okay. But, you know, it, 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 one in 10,000 trees out of uh, 2.5 million trees, there's still a lot of opportunity for forestry going on out yeah. there. Yeah, and not to mention when you're talking about sort of one hectare around that forest. A hectare is sort of a, a measurement that we don't use a ton, but it ain't huge a hectare is not a huge uh, not a huge swath of land no it's not no uh lawrence uh, one of the things that you described there was that there are some first nations that are are interested in engaging in this forestry there's some that are not it really does remind me of some of the conversations we're having around a lot of natural resource development and so oftentimes the the, the example of poverty is being used and I, I i accept the position that a lot of advocates are putting forward that says well It's been systemic poverty that's been put upon people on First Nations for hundreds of years via colonialism. So it's almost unfair to say, well, let us exploit your land to then undo some of this poverty, right? Like, it's almost a very Mm. disingenuous way of trying to offer a reparation or some kind of justice. 
It is, Dave. And and it also says we love big trees. We love to see big trees. So therefore, you own those big trees, but we're going to let we're not going to let you cut them down. So now, you know, there's a there was a pause that was negotiated by the current premier of British Columbia on on logging of old growth forests and large trees and everyone's supposed to voluntarily comply with it well there's lots of evidence that that's not that happening. they're not yeah no and the first nations communities that are engaging in this forestry are saying look you know these trees one tree can be worth twenty thousand dollars that's a, that's a lot of money to our community if you want us to leave these trees standing then we need compensation. So really, it now it's the uh, staring match, right? There, there, it, it's negotiation time, and who's going to blink, right? So yeah. it's it, you got to bring some cash to the table. But in reality, it's not a ton of money, right? To to stop uh, a whole bunch of trees from being cut down in in by First Nations communities and others. You, it could be done. It could be done if there was a will. And um, so now we just have to put the pressure on to make sure the British Columbia feels that will, feels that need, and gets the job done and, and yeah. gets these negotiations uh, settled. Like you said, the, the, the carbon capture component of, of old growth really does matter. We're spending all this money now trying to develop carbon capture technology when it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. trees can do that. And we've already got trees standing here that can do that. And there are responsible ways, responsible, sustainable ways to do forestry and cutting Mm -hmm. down old growth is not necessarily the way to do it. It's a lucrative way, but it's not the best way. That's for sure. Yeah. Lawrence, uh, what's coming up on the next episode of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther? Well, Lily has got us listening for alien life at outer space (laughs) and she's come up with something. (laughs) You and I are talking about off-grid GPS. It kind of fits in there. We've got this whole space theme going on. And another visit to the planetarium in Montreal oh. this time, and we're we're talking about uh, stars. And I asked the question: Who can actually see the Milky Way? Who has seen the Milky Way? L- Lawrence, I am delighted by this outer space edition of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. We're going way outdoors. We're going off. The, we're going off outside of the atmosphere for this edition of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther. I love it. That's so that's so fantastic. I'm also really loving the sound of this Montreal trip that you took. You went to the Biodome, you went to the Planetarium. You're going to all my first date spots. Oh yeah, we've had now we've had this in the five different episodes so far. I've run I've run out of steam, but I have to go back. They bought the biosphere right on yeah, Montreal yeah. on Nuns Island, so mm-hmm. that's coming out this year. That's going to be all uh, opening up again this year. So yeah, have you ever, go back? Have you ever gone to the Eco Museum Zoo uh, in Saint Anne de Bellevue? No, it's it's like the, the let's use the word zoo very loosely. It's essentially a nature conservancy, and what they do is they keep a bunch of uh, either abandoned or harmed uh, regionally uh, significant animals. So like porcupines, otters, Aww. so anything sort of relevant to the Quebec ecosystem. It's essentially a little bit of a rescue they've turned into a zoo. Dude, it's incredible. On your way into Montreal, you've got to pop by the Eco Museum Zoo next time you go. That sounds like a total plan. And there's another one I just heard about. I talked to the guy who's operating it, and it's all farm animals. He's got over 80 rescued farm animals on his property, and he, they live there until they pass away. Oh, no and way. Then, uh, yeah, and then another one, Lily and I, we just there's going to be a whale sanctuary on the coast of Nova Scotia. A lot of energy is being put into establishing a whale sanctuary there. So Lily and I inter- interviewed the uh, woman behind that big push. So yeah, lots of lots of uh, uh, rehabilitation and rescue for animals oh, of yeah. all sizes and types. Yeah, AMI over the years when I was working for AMI this week sent me to a couple places like that. I went to Bee Meadows Farm in Apple Hill, Ontario, where it's a rescue nice. for farm animals. It was amazing. I got to go into the goat pen for uh, for like an hour. That oh, was super yeah. cool. But but backtracking <laughs> to the Eco Museum Zoo in Saint Anne de Bellevue, they found out that my greatest fear was porcupines, or one of my many greatest fears was porcupines. Yeah. Well, if, I, if if you have many greatest fears, do you actually have a greatest fear? It's unknown. And they put me into the porcupine fit pin and gave me a uh, turnips to feed the porcupines. Me. I was uh, not a happy boy, but it made for good TV. Uh, Lawrence, thank you for this. You always make for good TV. We'll talk. Talk to you in a couple weeks. Thanks, Dave. Keep it up. That's Lawrence Gunther, the host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther, which you can find Sundays at 3 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. And you can follow Lawrence on Twitter at Lawrence Gunther, at Lawrence Gunther. Gunther is spelled G-U-N-T-H-E-R. Coming up next, I've got the regional news update. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. For you, I have the regional news update. Beginning in British Columbia, people caught in BC with up to 2.5 grams of certain illicit drugs like opioids, cocaine and ecstasy will not face charges starting today. They will get information from police on where to get help instead. Federal Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, Carolyn Bennett, offers some rationale for the policy shift. The drugs were confiscated. People then, um, in order to avoid becoming dope sick, would go and end up having to get drugs in a hurry. Um, and that that was creating more petty crime, more problems. And so I think that, uh, that we will be tracking all of these indicators very closely. Bennett reflected further on the significance of the moment. As we take a collective moment to grieve, we must also find the strength to do more. More for the victims of this crisis and more for those at risk of future overdose and other substance use harms. There is no one-size-fits-all solution to preventing or reducing overdose deaths, but this exemption is a start. Activities like trafficking, production, import, and export of illicit drugs remains illegal. The BC's coroner service will release data on drug toxicity deaths for all of 2022 later today. Over to the prairies, Manitoba Premier Heather Stevenson has promoted several members to her inner circle in a cabinet shuffle. Kevin Klein is now the environment minister. He says even though he's been in the office for a short time, he's not afraid to share his concerns. I do feel uh, thus far that the Premier's office and all members of the PC caucus are collaborative. We've been able to have conversations, I've been able to share my feelings on items and I've been able to uh, talk freely. Janice Morley-Lecompte is now Mental Health Minister. She says her experience outside of governments will aid her in this role. I worked in social services for many years and worked with a lot of individuals through different struggles and different challenges and I learned from them the strengths that they have and I want to grow on that and connect with the resources to grow on that. Premier Stevenson demoted three ministers who are not seeking re-election. The CFL Saskatchewan Rough Riders have announced they're launching the Great Cup Festival Legacy Grant Program. The plan is to encourage municipalities, Indigenous communities and charities to apply for grants supporting mental health, healthy lifestyles and youth-based programming. Up to $50,000 is available for each application and $250,000 is available in total. Over to Ontario, a political story for you. A group of Ontario Liberals, including former Cabinet Ministers Deb Matthews and Liz Sandals, have released a letter urging Ontario Green Party leader Mike Schreiner to join the party and run for the leadership. The Liberals have been without a permanent leader since Stephen Del Duca stepped down last year following an election loss. Schreiner released a response saying he's going to take his time to think about it. He says he has no ambition to lead any party other than the Greens, but first wants to get thoughts from his Guelph constituents, his family, friends, colleagues, and his colleagues. Over to the Atlantic provinces, a follow-up from yesterday. Faculty leaders say there is a common thread in two ongoing strikes at Atlantic Canadian universities. Professors, librarians and other faculty at Cape Breton University and Memorial University of Newfoundland and Labrador are on strike. John Lipneski, president-elect of Memorial's Faculty Association, said the strikes are a sign of chronic underfunding of public higher education. And Heather Sparling, spokeswoman for Cape Breton's University, Faculties Association said instructors are frustrated as universities in the region refuse to increase their salaries. That's your look at the regional news, but we're not done with your news update just yet. Let's get to a couple other stories. These ones dealing with climate. New research using artificial intelligence shows the world will likely hit a key warming threshold in about a decade. Norman Hall takes a closer look. A study in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences finds the world will likely breach the internationally agreed-upon climate change threshold in about a decade. The findings are more pessimistic than previous modeling. The study reignites a debate on whether it's still possible to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, as called for in the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement, to minimize the most damaging effects of climate change. 
I'm Norman Hall. You don't have to look 10 years in advance to observe some of the impacts of climate change. Six western U.S. states that rely on water from the Colorado River have agreed on a model to dramatically cut their water use, except for California. Ben Thomas explains. California gets the largest allocation of water from the Colorado. The river and its tributaries wind through seven states, serving 40 million people and a $5 billion a year agriculture industry. Two gigantic reservoirs, Lake Powell and Lake Mead, have reached historic lows, reflecting the stress on the river amid drought and all that demand and consequent overuse. The Bureau of Reclamation called on the states to propose ways to conserve two to four million acre feet of water. They've now come up with a plan. California, however, has not signed on, saying it will submit its own model for water reductions. I'm Ben Thomas. Enjoy the nature while you can. The reservation portal to reserve camping spots at Canadian national parks will be open in a few weeks with some changes. Brenda Molina Navidad has more information. The reservation dates which are posted online are different at each national park, historic site and marine conservation area. Parks Canada says the bookings are a couple months later than recent years because the reservation system was getting outdated and needed some upgrades. The agency says the system will look different from the previous one, but it will offer the same features and functions. Brenda Molina Navidad. The Canadian press. And speaking of some of the natural beauty in this country, a property that includes fescue grasslands, forests and wetlands near Waterton Lakes National Park in southern Alberta has been purchased by the Nature Conservancy of Canada. Alberta NCC spokesman Sean Fagan explains the significance of the land. At a broad scale, this is a unique area because it's where the grasslands butt up right against the mountains. There's not a ton of foothills, so that, that's kind of a unique part of the province just geographically, ge geologically in that, in that regard. And so you get a mixture of grassland species and uh, montane species living together. The 2.5 square kilometer piece of land joins about 130 square kilometers of land already under conservation. With the help of our supporters and partner landowners, we have helped create this uh, robust conservation network outside of Waterton Lakes National Park. And so this property is just kind of another piece of that larger puzzle. You may be a bit like me and uh, sleep poorly at night as a result of climate change and some of the concerns that I have. You heard that story about fresh water. That's a big one for me is we need fresh water to live and desalinization has not really been figured out all that well yet. So maybe you need a better bed to help you sleep. Well, Kelly and Ramya have recently launched themselves onto AMI-TV, really enjoying that show. And as part of that launch, AMI and Tempur-Pedic are teaming up with Kelly and Ramya. So be sure to enter for your chance to win a Tempur-Pedic Pro Adapt mattress. The Dream Big Contest runs until February the 8th at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time and to Enter for your chance to win that amazing bed. You should visit ami.ca slash krcontest, ami.ca slash krcontest. And again, you want to get that in there sooner than later. We're about a week out from this contest coming to an end February the 8th at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. That's all we've got for you in this hour of the show. After the break, Brock Richardson stops by. He will be talking about sports and offering you a preview of the neutral zone. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.